So Casey, I, I wanted to do write like an outline for a murder mystery. Okay. Have you ever thought about what you'd like to see in one of those classic stories? Welcome to ARF, a global murder mystery. I traveled to Kenya, England, and Belgium and asked my friends and hosts for details that they would want in a murder mystery. Well, not until now. Give me a moment. I'll go grab some sounds of the water while you ruminate. But I also traveled to Chicago, not entirely voluntarily. You'll learn why in a bit. But it was nice anyway, visited a friend, went to the beach. In audio, if you do the sound of the beach, it's instantly, it's, it's cliche or lazy, but it's like beautiful, no matter what. What do you think the visual version of that is? Probably the beach. <laughs> Casey is a video editor which is not just making things look good, but also involves storytelling. You give me one very good idea for my murder mystery. I like it to actually be a mystery. Like a good, like keep the mystery like I, front I, I and like, center? I like the moment, I like the feeling of just like, what the hell could have happened here? Not okay. Just, we know what happened and we gotta find out who did it. I like to, I like the whole thing to be a mystery. So like not just a dead person, but yeah. like a how like, did- How did they even like get to this place? Got like it. That, uh, the story of that like woman who they found in like the water, the water uh, rooftop water container in a hotel in LA. Do you know that story? No. Yeah, there's like <laughs> it was a big internet thing where like there was like this elevator footage of her acting really weird in an elevator, and then she disappeared, and they found her body in like a water retention like container on top of the hotel that would be like really hard for someone to get into. Oh. And so it was just kind of like. How is did it, like how did this even happen? Is it still a mystery? Uh, I think it might have ultimately been kind of a boring answer. It's like she just managed to get into the water and <laughs> kill herself. Oh, poor, poor lady. Yeah. I looked up that example. Basically, a young woman suffering from bipolar disorder killed herself while presumably in a manic state, experiencing hallucinations. She climbed into a water tank and couldn't get out. Her death was much speculated on because. It was elevator footage of her entering, exiting, looking out the elevator. Her death inspired the plots of TV shows like How to Get Away with Murder, Castle, an American Horror Story. I don't like this. But there is something in a mystery in these sensational stories that grabs us, isn't there? Something almost philosophical. And I think it's the feeling you have when you sense an answer is close by. Kierkegaard once said that we're in a constant state of becoming. It's a bit of a never-ending shepherd tone of existence. You're always almost there. A mystery, be a sensational one like this woman, or a murder mystery like I'm writing, it lets us get to that end point, that end point that we never get to get to in our existence as people. I think that's why I like murder mysteries. You get that completion. And speaking of which, we have our own murder mystery, don't we? We left off this story where Piety Jones, our main character, was invited to a weekend luxury cruise for her friend's company's annual party. Her friend's boyfriend, the beloved party animal Dougie, was the beating heart of the stuffy event and kicked off a rager that lasted all night. But in the chaos of that party, he mysteriously died. Chapter 7 the entire boat stayed up all night, 
It was a blur. It felt like a happy end of the world. The jungle of a boat gave the impression that they were far from the constraints of their normal world. A certain carpe diem tinged with self-destruction. Carpe nocturne, I suppose. First, the white staff trickled off, and then, like a happy horror movie, one by one, the friends and acquaintances peeled off until Piety found herself at five in the morning, the lone survivor, the final girl, sitting on the edge of a hot tub. Her ankles dipped in, sobering up after a long night. The hot tub seemed more like a hot spring. It was surrounded by mossy flora and without the chemically mist that normally accompanied hot tubs. Piety scooped some of the water and licked it. No chlorine. You'll drink anything, Bridget joked as she emerged from the forest. She had stayed up all night as well, the first time in a long time. She, now in a bathing suit, slipped into the hot tub slash hot spring. Bridget rested her hand on Piety's, stroking her hair like a dog's. Watch out, I have fleas, Piety joked. Huh? Bridget said, pulling her hand back. Piety laughed. No, no, you were petting me like a dog, Piety explained. Bridget started petting her again. Arf, arf, Piety jokingly barked. Bridget laughed. Piety's head began to clear. Time for me to fetch us some breakfast. Piety got up and left Bridget at the hot tub. The night had been long, but she had things to do. Piety walked back towards her room and heard dogs barking. It came from Bridget and Dougie's room. She tried the door handle. It wasn't locked. Once a crack appeared in the doorway, the dogs, leashes and mouths, nuzzled the door open and burst out in search of a human to walk them. Piety was not that human. Neither was Dougie. He was laying there motionless. Piety snapped into action. She had been drunk for about three months straight, a long time of inaction. But she knew now that things were about to accelerate. She could almost feel the torque of time stretching into her reality. Now it was her time to keep things on track. If last night was a blur, the morning was a muddy smudge. Word got out instantly, and Piety struggled to keep people from gawking and entering the room. The ship's medical officer, who worked for Community Plasma Health, showed up and Piety brought her into the room. The officer realized she was in over her head. A murder? No thank you. But Piety was ready. She noticed the panphoresis in the room and had the CPH health officer walk her through the process of turning it on and checking for vitals. The machine was easy to use. Good job designing it, Bridget. They checked Dougie's temperature and pulse. Nothing. It was confirmed Dougie was dead. Fearing a murder, Piety then used the machine's screening tools to run a range of toxicology tests. They came back normal. No overdose. No poisoning. No allergens. His body in general looked normal. There were no sign of trauma, blunt force or otherwise, which is to say, Dougie was just dead, but he didn't die. One thing stood out. He wore a t-shirt, a Dougie T t-shirt. But instead of some half-baked pun, it simply said, Jubilee. The only wound on Dougie's body was a small indentation from the needle he used when giving plasma. A fresh sunburn, though a perpetual sunburn to those who knew him and some scratches on his right arm from playing with the new puppy. Dougie just lay there flat on his back, supine, dead. The death confirmed Piety grabbed Dougie's keys, got the ship's medic officer out of the room, and locked the door. Piety returned to the hot tub to find Bridget nodding off in the tub. As she told her the news, the ship began to turn around. She told her the details, the t-shirt, and how they didn't know how Dougie had died. 
but that he was dead. She didn't say much as the horizon rotated away as the big boat turned, Bridget's world spinning even faster than the boat. The boat was heading back to British Columbia. Not to get any answers, though, just a coroner. Who had killed Dougie? Was a hard enough question. Why kill Dougie was even more baffling. So we need a motive. One of my first interviews provided me with one. It was in the Paris airport on my way to Kenya. During my layover, I relaxed next to an airport piano. I thought it would be funny as an American to play a very American song. Oh, she'll be coming round the mountain. I still think it's funny. I talked to a very nice man. What's your name? Paul. Paul. Where are you from? Austria. Austria. I'm going to play some classic Austrian. No, not Austrian, but classic music. Bach. You know Bach? Bach. Not John Sebastian. Yeah. John Sebastian. This is Paul. He thinks the murder should be done because of a petty dispute. Last week, his car had its annual inspection, and the guy... Okay, and he wouldn't give it to me just for no reason. Just he said, no, there's something wrong. The car is okay, but there's something wrong with your registration and something like that, and it, he fooled me for a week. Yeah, although the car was okay, that really gets me angry. Well, why did he do that? What was the benefit to him? Nothing. He was just wanting to be really correct. But, oh, uh, so the, yeah, if someone's really getting on your nerve with something completely unnecessary, you really get angry that you want to shoot him. You know what happened to me? I was, I'm from Minnesota in America. Here's my story of petty anger. I live in Minneapolis, but I bought a ticket from Chicago to get to Kenya because it was cheaper. Chicago's about 400 miles from Minneapolis. But then I noticed the ticket actually went from Chicago straight back to Minneapolis. So I called to see if I could just board in Minneapolis, not have to take a bus to Chicago. I called Expedia. Please stand by. They told me to call Delta. I called Delta. Hello, Mr. Schneeman. Uh-huh. Thank you for holding, sir. So the airfare difference would be $646.30. They said I would have to buy a new ticket from Minneapolis, but I just wanted to start my flight in Minneapolis. You'd have to rebuy so the to ticket the just to start in Minneapolis. Correct. I asked if I could get a waiver to purchase the new seat, since it's already my seat. And I'm not actually changing any of the flights or any of the seats. Well, sir... You are changing the flight, literally, by changing the origin. Uh, I mean... He tried to make me feel better. Sir, let me see if there is something that we could provide as an option. Please hold. Or really placate me. I don't think he was that nice. Thank you for holding, sir. So we were unable to make any difference to the airfare and waive any fees at this time. I actually felt kind of bad. Well... Embarrassed. Defeated. Of course, petty things happen in Kenya, too.
Right now we're at a traffic stop in Kisi, Kenya. We got stopped because Edgar, Josiah's son, we were driving around and he was talking on the phone while driving. Edgar got out of the car, talked to the cops, and a moment later, another traffic cop jumped in and started pressing the brake, checking things. Just testing the car? Yeah, testing the car. The car that doesn't offer brake lights. Huh? Operating a mobile phone while braking. That's an offense. So Edgar had broken a rule. The brake lights were in fact out and he was talking on the phone. But instead of having him pay the fine, they kind of started asking for a bribe. Started at around 5,000 shillings, which is like $40. Edgar talked them down to two. This guy has just taken two tokens. 2K? Yeah. Down like, from like, 5,000? Edgar just said, they just told me because I have a Muzungu. That means foreigner, a white guy. He's got the white guy in the car. Why don't you get money from him? He then told them that I was a missionary and I didn't have very much money. Good line, Edgar. Bribery in Kenya is a normal thing. It feels more like tipping almost. Like it's kind of like how some things are done. People don't like it, like tipping. Police officers and other officials aren't always paid enough, so it's kind of, you know, again, like tipping. It still is a problem, though, and Kenya is doing a lot to improve it and has made a lot of progress. And of course, we shouldn't cast stones. In America, we have many forms of bribery or access money. We don't think of it like that. Our court system functions very differently if you have money. That sounds a lot like a bribe, doesn't it? But petty things, petty annoyances came up a couple times in my interviews for what people would want the motive to be. Well, is it? Is that why Dougie got killed? Maybe. Let's continue. Chapter 8. No one said the word murder out loud. Like the butt of a car blocking the sidewalk, people just shuffled past it in silence. Dougie's death was an unactionable truth. Besides, who would kill Dougie anyway? Was it a petty thing, a small annoyance that built up until it burst? The first idea was the dog walker. Dougie was constantly dropping off his overly energetic dogs, then micromanaging how they got walked. Was that something? Or maybe it was something more classic, money. Dougie was... Somebody that has so many debts. Josiah's grandson, Travis, thought that would be a good motive. Maybe. The boss, Tariq Corette, Dougie owed him money, but how much money? Bridget said he borrowed a lot from him. What does a lot mean? But the boss man said, we're even. Besides, didn't he like Dougie? Isn't he rich enough to lose money? Maybe it was love. Mm, or maybe extramarital. Yeah, revenge, someone's like, why are you with my girl? Yeah, in my own house. Chipsfunga. Chipsfunga, a side chick. Was Dougie a philanderer? Sarah Ross, the manager of Dougie's Plasma Center. Love is a powerful emotion. It may not even be an emotion, but a force. A force that can do good and bad. Did she kill him because he wouldn't leave Bridget? Maybe Bridget is panning it on Sarah. What if it's something else entirely? 
I'm here with Abraham, my host and guide to Nairobi. This is Abraham, and he was an incredible host. He's from Nairobi, and he gave me a full tour of the city. He's a very driven, high-energy guy, but oddly, he doesn't make me nervous. It's a strange combination. Later, I was surprised to learn that he had grown up with a stutter, or stammer as they call it. He used to go to support groups. And every other time when I spoke in a support group, people used to ask me, are you sure you are stammer? <laughs> but it took a while for him to get to that point. He told me how hard it was when he was a kid. He told me about when he was about 15 years old. What I go through every day and the pain and the shame. Mm. And I remember for a whole time, I used to hide in the toilet when there was a reading time. Because I knew, of course, the lesson is going to be in the afternoon. So immediately after lunch, I would go to the toilet and just stay inside there. Oh. Until after like 45 minutes, then I come out. Did you just wait? Did you bring like a book? No, no, no. You, you just hide because, I mean, I don't want the shame. But after maybe 40 minutes, I would reappear and everybody would be like, yeah, yeah, here he is, here he is. But by then, the lesson is over and we continue. Do you sometimes right? forget that you used to stammer? Uh, actually, I don't realize. I don't realize that I used to stammer. But when I meet somebody who stammers, I can basically feel their pain. Mm. Having gone through it for about 18 years, I can easily identify with the pain and I can know what they are going through. Did you used to have anger as well as like shame? Um, of course, anger used to be there. Once in a while, a suicide thought crossed my mind. When I asked Abraham for ideas for the murder mystery, he said a murder could be done because someone's so angry because they were bullied, or it was a suicide for the same reason. Well, I don't think I'm going to include stammering in my murder mystery. I want to keep it out of the murder mystery because you have a happy ending. Yes. And I don't want to dwell on the negative. Yeah, no, no. The only thing I may want to do is to encourage those who are behind me, or those ones who still go through it, or those ones who have suicidal thoughts. Those are the kind of people probably I would want to help, you know, over time. Yeah, well, I'm sure you already have, uh, and probably will continue to do. Yes. I didn't want my story to involve someone being bullied because of a speech impediment. I didn't want my story to have real-life pain. Whoever killed Dougie, it will be because of an over-the-top soap opera-esque scenario. Over-the-top is what I like. It's going to get gross. Let's see how crazy we can get. Chapter 9. As the floating island, or at least the verdant yacht, returned to British Columbia, the crew and his guests went through the motions of one more dinner. The tone oscillated from tense to depressing, and to make things worse, Dougie wasn't there to make his death more bearable. No music was piped in. Instead, birds chatted overhead, like nurses and admins in a hospital casually chatting to each other, as the people in the waiting rooms wait for the worst news of their lives to be delivered. On the artificial island, the meal felt debatched rather than decadent, unless you weren't feeling much then it was just muted. The rich sauces were no longer indulgent but clammy, and the only thing the wine complemented perfectly was more wine. More wine for piety, though, was not a problem. Bridget, her emotions slowly coming to life after the discovery of her deceased boyfriend, started things off by asking the boss man about the finances of his company, his personal finances, and then, not so bluntly, about the money Dougie owed him. 
but Tariq was a ghost and the accusations lapped over him. No one at the table rose to his defense. The boss man put down his fork and looked at his plate as if he was lost. Sarah Arras tried to make conversation. She brought up something about work, the new rental property on 10th Avenue, but then broke down crying, her tears floating on top of the oily starter soup. The guests moderately straightened up as the waitstaff cleared their plates for the next course. The whole affair felt more like an all-day corporate training than fine dining. But their attentions returned, their amygdalas momentarily sparking back to life when they realized what the next course was. Blood pudding. Bossman Tariq sunk low in his chair. He'd forgotten about this. A joke. Blood pudding for a plasma and blood technology company. Hilarious. The guests ate the pudding, however, perhaps just to be rid of it. Perhaps they did so to dissolve the tension. Bridget refrained. It appeared she needed the tension, something to tether herself to. Hello, I'm here with Richie, my brief host for my stay in Bristol. How do they say it? Bristol. Bristol. In England, the land of blood pudding, it's actually called black pudding, I met a wonderful man named Richie. He's a nurse and he hosted me for a night. He told me about a different blood-based food. We were casually talking about cow tongue, and then you started talking about blood. Pig's blood stew. Yeah, tell, tell me about pig's blood stew and what goes into it. Well, it's a very uh, native to Filipino kind of a dish. The base of the food really is pork intestines. It's called dinuguan and it's made with pork intestines or like the liver, kidneys, and the lumps of pork. And then you need to mix it with onions and garlic, water, vinegar, and then that's when you pour the, the pig's blood. And then yeah, pour it. Once the blood gets cooked, it will, from red, it will turn to brown. Wow. Yeah. And I picture just like a deep. Deep chocolate, 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 yeah. chocolate-colored dish, really, but doesn't taste like chocolate. I grew up mastering how to cook it. My friends, they all like it. We'll return to Richie in a moment. Back to the story. Tonight on the floating island, there was no dessert. Was it canceled? Did the staff just give up? No one came to clear the tables. There was an unsettled feeling like mice in the corner of your eye. The staff, the mice of the island, blipped in and out of the room, but not to serve the guests anymore. Something had occurred. The guests, undirected, slowly started to get up, milling away from the open-air dining room. Piety got up and peered around the corner. The jungle facade gave way to a normal hallway, right angles. The hallway led to a conventional kitchen. The staff were slowly crowding, towards something, looking down. Again, Piety snapped into action. She felt like a rarely used appliance, like an apple core that goes months, years even, without ever being used. But when needed, nothing else will do. Piety burst through the kitchen doors. Seven or so waitstaff were standing around a body laying in the freezer, the cook. They were slowly getting closer to him, working up the courage to check his pulse. Get the ship medic and stay back, Stay away from the body, Piety shouted. Her assertiveness worked and everyone gave room to check the body. 
His head was bloodied. Someone had struck it. She told the worried group, the cook is dead. A different worried group had arrived. Tariq, Bridget, Sarah, and even the dog walker were in the kitchen. Underneath his apron, the cook still had on his cookie t-shirt that Dougie had given him. Bridget saw this. It dislodged something in her mind. Jubilee, she said. Jubilee can mean a debt is forgiven. Dougie had a t-shirt that said Jubilee on when he was killed, which meant he thought he thought his debt was cleared. She trailed off. Bridget looked up at Tariq and said, You. The dog walker, acting on instinct, grabbed the boss by the arm. Tariq broke free from the clasp and ran to his executive suite. The small group followed after him, a confused speed walk breaking into a trot. This was their first time in a mob, after all. By the time they reached the boss's, boss's suite, they were in a sprint. But they need not have. They found Tariq in his room trapped. In keeping with the boat's theme, his room was pungent with the smells of flowering plants. Vines pushed through strategically placed holes in the walls and curled and hugged the room like tentacles. Tariq paced back and forth on the conventional wooden floors, batting the smaller loose vines away. The group entered the room. Tariq, somehow confused at his wealth, which normally shielded him so well, did not keep this mob from entering. He looked dismayed, scared. The suite had CPH materials and three plasma machines, Bridget's panphoresis, lining the walls like robot bodyguards. But they did little to protect him. A moment later, Tariq was restrained and tied to an office chair. He squirmed and squiggled and claimed he was innocent. Sarah Arras, the dog walker, and anyone who could elbow in hurled questions at him in this makeshift kangaroo court. It wasn't me, Tariq yelled, but was instantly peppered with, then why did you run? How much did he owe you? You're the only one with access to his room, aren't you? Piety entered the room. The remainder of her six-pack of labats dangled from its plastic hoop. As she surveyed the verbal melee, she kicked over the three panphoresis machines like dominoes. The machines were top-heavy and bounced on the ground. The smaller parts of the brittle machine shattered like Christmas ornaments. The clatter lassoed everyone's attention. They turned to look at her. She freed the last labats from its circle and cracked it open, taking a long slip of the warm rust water. You know, I don't even like beer but it has alcohol in it, and that helps me think less, worry less. Dougie doesn't worry, did he? I first thought we all loved Dougie, but he's not actually that lovable. He's kind of annoying. But he's free from that self-criticism that we all feel, and just being next to him lessens that voice in your head. And yet one of us wanted him dead. Piety looked at Tariq. But it wasn't me, I'm not guilty, he cried. But you are guilty, aren't you? Piety provoked, taking stock of her audience, then continued, You're guilty of being a bad boss, being too goddamn selfish, for not promoting Bridget. If you had treated your employees correctly, Bridget, maybe she would not have developed such a homicidal chip on her shoulder. Bridget tensed up and Piety shifted her gaze onto her and began her Agatha Christie parlor moment. We all thought we loved Dougie but we just used him to let ourselves love ourselves. But only one of us actually loved him. Bridget. So I killed him because I loved him? Bridget sarcastically commented. Piety continued. 
It's a crushingly tragic quirk that we can hurt those we love. Bridget, you told a lie. You said you only helped Dougie set up his finances. But Dougie can't remember his own PIN number. You think he could track his own invoices? So you still did his finances. Why lie? Well, you needed us to think he was in debt. You told him he was running out of money. But he wasn't, was he? He could afford that new puppy, couldn't he? In fact, Dougie was doing great. He was killing it. Not because of his t-shirt company. No, because he was one of the few to actually get something out of modern social media. He had become a successful influencer. What'd you say about him? Everyone loves him, and he loves everyone, but he needs you? Well, soon he'd be making more money than you, and he wouldn't need you anymore. So what'd you do? You let him think that he was in debt, and told him that there was a one-time bone marrow transplant that could get him out of debt. What'd you tell him? That it could be done in one sitting? You just remove the blood, get the bone marrow out of it, put it back in him, easy money? Did you give him that shirt, Jubilee, plant that clue, the canceling of his debt? I bet he believed you, as you hooked him up to your incredible new machine, the two loves of your life, and then you drained the blood from him. Probably he was looking at you, smiling, when he got weaker and weaker, but you told him it was all part of the process, and he looked up at you as his world slowly turned black. And it may have worked, but after you did it, you must have felt empty. Because you then pushed your limits, didn't you? Piety addressed the room. Remember dinner? The blood pudding? We all tried it, forced it down, hoping to end that miserable meal. But one of us didn't. Bridget. Piety looked at Bridget. What did you do with all the blood you drained from Dougie? The audience then, in unison, understood and gasped. Remember Richie from before? He told me a story about cannibalism. How do you say the blood sued? Dinuguan. Dinuguan. Uh, are there ever any like horror stories or like myths about someone using human blood? Not in Dinuguan, but there's like a story in some rural areas in the Philippines where they use liver, human liver, which is a myth. That's not real. Just liver, though, not the whole body. Well, whole body, you 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 can like easily mistaken it as a pork's liver oh. or cow's liver, and there is this feast in one of the rural areas, and then Richie says people go to that feast, but they bring some lemon because it's rumored that if you squeeze lemon on the meat, it will reveal if it's a human liver or not. That yeah. meat that is you're there eating. Truth to that? Or is that all just... Well, there's no scientific <laughs> basis, but it, I, I actually have tried to bring my own lemon when we went to one far-flung area to, to to join and eat in the feast. Not because of that? Or because of that? No, there, I mean, there's so many instances that people doing it, but what? me, hearing the myth. story... Well, that's what he said. It's a myth, but... but like, you, you know, stories that? have been like... Stories have been, <laughs> and I kind of believe it. Like you know, well, when, yeah, you brought a lot. When when you when you when, you when, when your mom says, "Oh, bring out your own lemon." Okay, mom, I will bring your own lemon. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble, so. 
Yeah, interesting. Of course, there's no cannibalism going on. There's no human blood in pig's blood soup. That's all myth or stories, stories like ours, where we just finished hearing about how Bridget had put Dougie's blood into the blood pudding that they all had last night. Let's go on. Chapter 10. Vomit was everywhere, which meant Dougie was everywhere. Slipping on the pools of vomit, the warm acidic stench wafting towards the ceiling, Tariq fell to one knee, tried to wipe the vomit off his hands on his legs, gave up and yelled, Get her! Get Bridget! She killed Dougie! Piety corrected, Oh no, she's not guilty. The room slowed their squirming. Piety paused and waited, all eyes on her, somehow ignoring the stench and humidity that comes with vomit. Piety held their attention. Then, it started to break. Was she just playing with them? Who is this chick anyway? Just some drunk who's into drama? Piety held fast, though, saying nothing. And then gradually, a sound broke through, relieving the silence. Dogs, but not in the room, outside, getting closer. And then, the double doors burst open, in walking Dougie, his dogs, and the cook. Dougie was live-streaming his entrance. Guess who's alive? Play that shit. LMFAO blasted from his speaker the cook was holding. Dougie had his classic Dougie smile on, soaking up the spectacle. That is, until his eyes met Bridget's, and for the briefest of moments, his smile broke, and if his heart could break, it would have. But a second later, he reached into his duffel bag and pulled out party t-shirts and tossed them to the bewildered crowd. And as if by magic, when the Dougie T's smacked them in the face, they came to life. Dougie cut the music and spoke into his phone. And here's the lady that saved me, Miss Pie. Miss Pie, tell them how you saved me. He turned his phone onto piety. She turned to the people in the room. You're all probably wondering that, huh? Piety started. I didn't know why Bridget invited me here. Didn't know why she lied about Dougie's finances. And so, to be honest, I was just a little suspicious, and there was something I wanted to ask Dougie. So during that wild night, when we all tried to get drunker than God, I saw Bridget and Dougie go to their room, but only Bridget came out. I figured Dougie wasn't asleep. The door was locked, but not closed. A thin vine had drooped down from the ceiling and got caught in the doorframe. I was drunk, so I went right on in and found Dougie laying on the bed, almost dead. Thank God Bridget is good at designing those machines, because I was able to easily hook Dougie back up and return the blood to him. Dougie regained consciousness. Reeling from the intensity of almost dying, we made a plan. We replaced his blood with chicken blood from the kitchen. We wanted to see how far we could go with the deception. Dougie thought it'd make great content. When Bridget returned to check the body, we'd prank her. Pretty morbid, but I was drunk and Dougie was Dougie. But when she returned, all she did was gather the blood and leave. She didn't even look at him, so we kept the prank going. The next morning, I had to keep everyone from looking at Dougie too closely. It wasn't that hard to make him look dead. We used some tinted under-eye concealer. That, plus the expectation of him being dead, sold the illusion. Faking his vitals was important, and it was easy thanks to the machine. Again, I thought we would get caught, but the medical officer didn't check Dougie. She just trusted the machine. There might be a lesson in there. So the charade got extended. 
And the cook? Tariq asked. We knew Bridget had something planned with the blood, and so we warmed some of the staff. We told the cook to watch out. And later, Bridget attacked him, striking him on the head. It was his own choice, however, to pretend to be dead. To add to the drama, the cook, wearing his cookie t-shirt, came forward. To be clear, I straight up thought this was one of those murder mystery party things. It's not, is it? It's not, Piety answered. But there was a mystery, for me at least. It started long before the attempt on Dougie's life, however. Piety entered into her peroration. Before all this happened, there was a little mystery, a simple one. Why was I invited? Piety was looking directly at Bridget. Bridget absorbed the knowledge that she was exposed, considered, and then answered. You were right. Dougie didn't need me anymore. He'd move on. The dogs would move on. No one would need me. I wasn't angry. I just... You know when you want to hug someone so tightly that their head pops off like a rock'em sock'em? I just wanted to do that. A moment with Dougie. Drain his love out. Finally have it. And me? Piety asked. Bridget continued. After Dougie, I'd need a new dog, Bridget coyly said, expecting an answer. None came. Bridget continued. What do you think? I mean, you need me, don't you? And I need to be needed. Am I crazy for seeing this? She wasn't wrong. Piety was a mess. She knew what her life was like when she was in control. Maybe Bridget was right. Maybe they needed each other. Bridget continued. Come on, Piety. We can be a team. Piety realized Bridget was right. She is a mess. But life's a mess. And she didn't need Bridget to control her life. Maybe control was the problem. Bridget got impatient. You need me, and you know this. Say something. Piety didn't. Bridget raised her voice. Speak. Speak. Piety answered. Arf, arf. The end. Kind of. I've been thinking about murder mysteries, fictional violence, real violence. When I was in England, I stayed in a council estate, public housing, and I heard a family arguing. Agatha Christie didn't leave a lot of room for the working class, for reality, in all of her novels. And that was kind of the point, wasn't it? Looking at actual violence, it doesn't have that resolution, that satisfaction that Hercule Poirot can deliver. And speaking of Poirot, after England, I took a train to Belgium, the homeland of Miss Christie's fictional detective. But this train is just smooth. Even the, um... The table that you can pull down to put food on, it's, it's made of metal. And I just had a flash of my Matutu ride, Matatu ride, from Kisi, Kenya to Nairobi. And like, if you compare it visually, it looks like I'm in the spaceship. Feels like I'm in the spaceship. I just couldn't comprehend it. As individuals, we may be morally or intellectually repulsed by global inequity, 
But as we flail against it, kind of like quicksand, it just slides by, continuing to hug us. The train was taking me to meet up with my friend Siggy. He lives in a little town called Leuven. <laughs> so you make the most awful sounds like the uh, and, and then... You know. Belgium is most known for its waffles, chocolates, diamonds, at least to me it is. But in Africa, it's probably most known for King Leopold's brutal control and demand for rubber in the Congo. From 1 to 15 million people were killed. That's a pretty big spread. The records are spotty, which means Central Africa doesn't have one murder mystery, but millions. It's a lot to take in, but I didn't have to. My trip was done. There was a guy at the Leuven train station playing a uh, steel drum thing. I gave him the rest of my euros. They broke. And went to the airport. Got on a plane. And made it home. I've been in a plane for 20 hours. Remember that bread dough I buried before my trip? I was surprised for you. Really? This is a Lislam, different from the co-worker who I buried the dough with. Something in the backyard. Backyard? All the way in the back. <laughs> we went to dig up the sourdough starter that was frozen in the snow. You wanna... There's snow. How did you get to that? Elislam is from Sierra Leone. You remember your first thought when you... And I came January too, so I, it was... Minnesota was cold. Like, you came in January. Yeah. It was so cold. It was so cold, I was like, what do people live here? <laughs> She's laughing at me. It was hard to dig out. Is that it? Whoa, I found There we have it, the sourdough starter. <laughs> what is that? Mayonnaise? Mayonnaise? <laughs> no, it's my sourdough starter, and it marks the end of my murder mystery project. It's still good? We'll see. <laughs> and back to baking bread. Back to baking bread. Back to my job where I get paid a relatively obscene amount of money compared to the people I met in my travels. And that's unsatisfying, isn't it? Like, why can't we just snap? Have it be equally distributed. That dissatisfaction is what I've learned. The murder mystery is all about satisfaction. It feels good, it gives us resolution to a story. But the world isn't a story and there's not a lot of resolution. When we think of the poverty caused by colonialism and preserved by capitalism, we won't get a clear, cozy ending. There are no endings. Even in my murder mystery, you thought it had an ending? No, it didn't. Here's an epilogue. Heidi Jones tore open the plastic sack from Amazon. It was a t-shirt from Dougie. Dougie Tees, of course. On it was an odd image of a dog on a skateboard drinking a tall boy. The dog's snout was mid-morph, like being seen through an old window pane. The dog was cute enough, though what cartoon dog isn't? There was no letter included. Drop shipping doesn't allow for such personal touches. Piety texted Dougie a thanks, love the dog. She placed the t-shirt on her bookshelf where it would sit for three months. Eventually, she would add it to a pile of clothes jammed into a paper bag, the bag slowly bursting in slow motion. 
If she were to pick up the bag, the upward pressure would surely complete the job, the tear splitting to the edges, the clothes unfolding and spilling out. Perhaps this eventuality is what keeps her from completing the errand, or not. Her meditation on procrastination was interrupted with a text notification. Dougie had responded. Deaf, Dougie teases using Dolly to come up with images. You can just type in whatever you want and it'll ship the tea instantly. Piety loved Dougie, wanted to have a few beers with him and talk about how he eats the skin of both mangoes and kiwis. But goddammit, perhaps she should have let Bridget kill him. Thanks for listening to ARF, a global murder mystery. There are many people to thank. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it here. Basically, I went on a trip. I used the website couchsurfing.com and about five different people hosted me. These are strangers that just opened their house to me and welcomed me and took me around and um, went above and beyond what I expected, of course. I visited friends as well that carved out time for me and showed me a wonderful time. I thought about dedicating this whole thing to my grandma because you dedicate books. I had a whole justification for it. I'm not going to tell you why, but maybe in the future. Dedicated to Dale Hedges, my grandma. I miss you. I think about you all the time.